This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. In these wild and confusing times, I look hard for wise heads to help guide us. We want someone not so dedicated to the power system that they just lull us with sweet propaganda. And we want sources not so far out that they baffle us with twisted facts. And I think our next guest may fill that sweet spot in between. Now, outside the official United Nations climate press conferences at Lima and Paris, we got other voices, powerful voices, through a group I knew little about. It's called the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative. Is it reliable? Wait until you hear who's involved. Here are just a few of the many founding members. James Hansen, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Carrie Emanuel, Catherine Hayhoe, Rabbi David Rosen, Swami Saraswati, Michael Mann, Reverend Sally Bingham, Michael Oppenheimer, the list goes on and on. So often chairing these high-powered press conferences in different cities, all recorded as YouTube videos, is Stuart Scott. He's the founder and director of strategic planning for the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative. Stuart Scott, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm really quite honored. Well, later, I'd like to find out how you drew together so many top scientists and spiritual leaders into a strong climate alliance. But would you mind, Stuart, if we start first with some of the most pressing problems for our listeners? Uh, I start wherever you like. I, I have real confidence in the shows that you put together. So, Okay, well, now, a month ago, I gave a heads up to our listeners that the economic system is teetering on the edge even more than usual, and that's a hard one. We, we don't want to suffer. We don't want our loved ones and neighbors to suffer. Yet, if we keep going with this fossil-powered heat engine we call civilization, we will wreck the climate if we haven't done it already. Do you think an economic crash could be a real way to slash emissions quickly. Well, that's a really good place to start. Let me segue into answering it uh, kind of laterally. For me, the climate problem is one of an array of ecological problems and environmental problems that we have. We have more than just those. We have a huge problem of uh, inequity, where you're well-known, one to one percent richest people make more than 80 percent of the poorest people. But the specifics of the ecological crisis that we're going through, of which climate is the leading edge, is a direct result of a what I call a defective operating system for global civilization. And that operating system is known conventionally by two names, money and economics. Now, the economics part, the brand of economics we have is a particular brand. It's growth economics. It's actually called neoclassical growth economics. And after a hundred years of only having that, people have kind of become used to it as the only game in town or the only possibility even. It's the only thing we can conceive of. Well, it's not. And it, unless we change our economic folly very quickly, and it will change uh, on its own if we don't do so of our own volition, unless we can manage to change this rapacious economic system in a way that it, it will function in harmony with the planet rather than devouring the planet. We are looking at a, uh, a collapse of civilization, as far as I can tell. Climate, as I say, is just the leading edge. Uh, we have plenty of other scales of ecological health or 
uh, unhealth of the planet that are, are similarly being uh, violated. You know, the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, the phosphorus, various key elements which are uh, on all of these dimensions we are reaching problem territory. But climate, as I say, is the, is the leading edge. That's the one that's going to impact us quickly. So to get back to your question, not only would an economic, let's say, mildly an economic downturn uh, notice how the, the growth economists always want to f- frame a any kind of degrowth, any kind of contraction of the economy as bad, and we'll be getting back to growth again soon, folks, so just stay tuned and keep buying, keep, go out there and buy. So unless we have a sustained leveling off, if not downturn, then we will have an economic crash. And I view that economic crash as pulling us back from an ecological crash, which is even far more dangerous. The economic crash, as you kind of said, it'll be bad for people's well-being and health and livelihood, and the banks will foreclose, and we know what it'll look like, uh, the way the system is set up, economic downturns, uh, the banks are the only people, uh, the only agencies that make out. But if we have the kind of climate future that many scientists are saying we're headed directly and quickly towards, then it's going to be a loss of easily half the population of Earth. Um, and I say half the population when I say that to to many people I interact with. They say, oh, if, if we get off easy, it'll be only half. Wow. So we're talking about very, very serious dimensions here. Well, my other concern about an economic crash is it may freeze us into our current energy system. You know, the electric grid that wastes half of all the power produced, the old coal and nuclear plants will stick with them. What if there is no money to transition to a clean energy system? There are arguments that could be made in both directions there, and it's one of those uh, we're not quite sure until we cross that bridge, until we, we see what, if we get the, the big downturn, the collapse, the slowdown, what the response is. But there are individuals and organizations, corporations, who are hell-bent on impeding the transition to renewables, to uh, less impactful sources of energy, no matter what. No matter what. So I'm not sure that the downturn when the the lack of capital will be the the main problem. Let's talk a little bit about China. Economic pundits used to say demand from rising China would rejuvenate growth in the world. And you've outlined the point that we really just can't take a lot more growth in the way we look at it. Well, now it comes, there's a bit of a slump in China, a rocky stock market there. Stuart Scott, where do you think China fits into our struggle to avoid dangerous climate change? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, China is the, the, the game changer globally. Their economy quickly, uh, over the past couple of decades, grew to, to rival the, that of the United States. And I'm not sure if it's now a bigger economy than the American economy. But, of course, the two are interwoven. So to say who's bigger, is it, it's not very relevant. They are both simultaneously growing big for the same reasons. But China has the political advantage, and I'm sure a lot of people in America and the so-called world of democracy will uh, take exception to this. China has the advantage of not having an easily manipulated bi-party or multi-party system. And I say easily manipulated because as smart as we think we are, it's, it is fairly easy to manipulate a population and get them to vote one way or another. It's like uh, presidential contests in the U.S. have become more a uh, question of who's got more uh, uh, money to spend, who's, you know, whose PR guys are uh, better. 
you know, we, we've seen some presidents sold into office who we scratch our heads, wonder how they got there. And in, in fact, now a lot of people say that about some of the uh, current candidates. And I, I won't mention names because I try to stay politically neutral. It's difficult, especially when one party in the U.S. aligns itself more or less with denial that climate is a problem. In, in any case, China having a single party, uh, which is all-powerful, can turn on a dime. I was told that when China wanted to do away with disposable plastic bags, they hired 450,000 inspectors to go bust shop and shopkeepers who were still giving out free plastic bags. So China can turn on a dime when it wants to. Now, I, I am working with James Hansen this year since he responded positively to my invitation to come to COP21, and, and that was actually the first uh, COP, the first conference of parties to the Kyoto Protocols that he ever attended. I'm hoping that he and I will have a closer working relationship this year. But his information to me in one of our emails was that China is where the change will happen this year. China is where the action will be. And I believe what he means is that China has the need, the ability, the financial resources to turn to renewable sources of energy very quickly. And he is inside of their thinking to some degree. He just got back from a, a trip to China uh, that he went to after Paris uh, uh, talks were over. So his assessment was made after his return to the U.S. from that trip. So China, I think we're going to see them turning the quickest and uh, hopefully setting the way. And also, um, they will be eating our lunch, uh, continuing to eat our lunch in terms of developing of the renewable energy infrastructure. And, and I mean, they're the leading supplier of solar panels now, and we'll probably follow that up with all kinds of uh, large-scale and small-scale uh, alternative energy uh, implementations. Well, I don't I don't want to pour cold lunch on that, but I do know that Dr. James Hansen is also very strongly advocating nuclear energy and uh, that the Chinese are building, I believe, at least 29 new nuclear plants. Yes, they're leading in wind. Yes, they're leading in solar, but they're also going heavily nuclear, and that worries me, especially after Fukushima. The nuclear question is one that I, I have to deal with very deftly because it, it is a very hot-button topic for good reasons. We've uh, Humanity has lots of hubris, and, and we don't have a very good track record at containing anything, no less something that needs to be contained for a quarter of a million years or so. So, yes, I have, I have traditionally had great reservations about nuclear power. But Dr. Hansen got together with three other uh, well-known scientists in Paris and did a press conference. And I actually helped publicize the press conference. I'm not ashamed of that at all. And what they're talking about, what these four scientists went on record as saying, is that we will not be able to make the turn away from what I will call certain death, the continuation of greenhouse gas emissions unabated, unless we allow nuclear to be in the mix. And they are not talking about the old-style nuclear. They're talking about what's called fourth-generation nuclear, which is, is not ready for commercial deployment now. I'll be honest. As far as I know, it's not. There are two forms, and the one that I know of is, is called liquid thorium. It has a small footprint in terms of the amount of space it takes. It actually digests the conventional nuclear waste from the old style of power plant, making it non-fissible, that is non-bomb-making material, um, a much smaller amount of it, much shorter half-life. So it's 
in in many respects, it's a solution to problems we've created with uh, the first gen, uh, first couple of generations of nuclear power. So I'm I'm not going to hold myself out as a proponent. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of the messenger, so don't don't shoot the messenger. Um, but from gentlemen who are very, very studied about the trends and problems from a macro level, they don't see us dodging the bullet unless we allow nuclear to be in the mix. Now, Dr. Hansen did say that there's almost there's a quasi-religious opposition to nuclear power that is unhelpful. I would just urge people to consider all the facts and not just go with a knee-jerk reaction. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that because I want to move on to another hot topic, and that's the possibility of abrupt climate change. Your group, the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative, helped our guest and climate scientist Paul Beckwith get that information out at COP meetings. Do you personally think abrupt climate change is a serious risk? And if so, what could happen? Well, yes, I, and the short answer is yes, I think it's a very serious risk. Now, I, I look at our futures in a, um, a more nuanced fashion and that I, I kind of constantly am factoring the risk of something happening times the severity of what will occur if it does happen. And that helps me determine my priority list of what I want to work on, what needs to be paid attention to. And I think it's a serious enough risk that we should be treating it as though it were imminent. Because if it is real, and there are some very credible scientists, Dr. Uh, besides Paul Beckwith, who's uh, become a good friend in the last couple of years, there's do- uh, Dr. Peter Wadhams, Dr. Natalia Shakova, and others, uh, Dr. Jason Box, others who have gone up to the northern uh, latitudes of the planet, the Arctic zones, and observed methane releases. And methane is the showstopper. Methane is the gun going off. If there is a, a methane burp, as it's been called, if there's a huge sustained methane release, as there appears to be underway, then that could be the, just the game over uh, signal. So we need to treat that with, I think, all due haste. And I believe that there should be research going on to how do we artificially pull the uh, northern regions of the planet, the Arctic zone of the planet. And that brings up another quasi-religious hot button, which is the G word, not the God word, the geoengineering word, because people, rightly so, question our ability to get it right. We have geoengineered our way into this mess. What do you think? Hundreds of millions of cars and trucks running around on stored sunlight in the form of carbon fuels. What do you think that is? That's geoengineering. We just geoengineered our way into the problem without calling of that without knowing it was that. So that's the paradigm. We are geoengineering the planet. The question is, can we come up with a wiser way of geoengineering our way out of the mess that we've created? Lots of debate on that. Moving yes. on again, well-respected scientists like James Hansen and Peter Ward warn that rising seas will be the first and worst big impact of climate change. Do you think it could be something else? Yes, I don't think that, uh, that that's one place where I, I disagree with uh, Dr. Hansen. He, by the way, to be fair, he is somewhat dismissive about the situation with the Arctic methane. You'd have to class him as one of the modelers. Uh, and the expeditionary scientists who go up there and see the methane happening and measure it in the water column, they say, come and look. But the modelers say, well, our models say that it can't be happening yet. So there's a standoff there, and I can't begin to resolve that one. But I think there's a, a, a huge cause for, for concern there. Hopefully, I'll be able to get Dr. Hansen to maybe go up and do some observations himself and see whether that changes his position on the methane release. 
And what about the whole issue of the threat to our food production? We've seen a, a mini addition of that in California with the drought and food prices going up because of it. But, you know, as the world warms, this could get much, much worse. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I lost the thread of your, your previous question. Thanks for essentially leading me back to it. I don't think rising sea levels is the, the worst that we face. I think that uh, food shortages, uh, collapse of our ability to grow food in certain regions, certain nations, will be the worst that we face. Because when people get hungry, governments fall. It is said by many that the war in Syria, which was capitalized upon by ISIS, they took political control in a power, not vacuum, but a, uh, a power contest between the, the government that was not taking care of its people when they were experiencing uh, the trouble with their extended drought and their, their crop failures. We will ex- be seeing this more and more and more. Um, there's a set of four maps that I show whenever I do my presentations about climate, which show the, and, and what your audience can find them online by uh, Googling University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, and they had four predictive drought maps. Well, actually, one was for the first decade, and then it was the one-third, two-third, and final decade of this century. And they are mind-blowing as to what's predicted by conservative science in terms of the drying out of huge areas of the planet. And it looks like, at least from the the rainfall perspective, that the northern latitudes of uh, China, Russia, and Canada will be where most of the food will have to come from by the end of this century, by the latter third of this century. But the soils there are are not well-developed soils because those have been perennially frozen land. So you've got thin soil, which will be getting adequate rain and will probably be inadequate to feed a population of 7 to 9 billion people. I think we're looking at a, a collapse of human population in this century. Radio Ecoshock. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Stuart Scott, founder of the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative. Stuart, are you a scientist? What is your background? Well, my background, I, I'm well trained in many sciences. I'm, I'm not an expert. I don't hold myself out to be an expert, but I'm, uh, I graduated from Columbia University with a, a wide training in physics and chemistry and, and biology. But I specialized in mathematics. I taught mathematics and statistics and critical thinking at the college level for several years before I literally quit my day job to do climate work full-time. So I look at trends, I evaluate things with a critical eye, and I try to discern what is the most important, what are the most important trends and facts of of all that I look at and study, and what's the most reliable, who's saying what and how many people are of uh, credibility are agreeing and disagreeing. I, and I, I come up with a, a, a synthesis of my own that then I combine with my other skills, which I seem to have a, uh, a skill at public presentation. I go out and make these presentations about the climate problem, and, and that over the years has led me to a more and more refined strategy on how do I make change? How do I try to create the change in in the direction that, that I, I feel we need, because I have no particular fortune or fame to work with. And that's actually how I came up with this United Planet Faith and Science Initiative, realizing that I could make the best contribution by focusing the the authority of others on the problem I felt we had. How did you manage to do that? You've got some tremendous names involved. Well, it, it actually came out of uh, a 2009 project, which 
literally uh, emerged from my meditation. You know, it's, it was a, I'll say it was a spiritual inspiration. I all of a sudden, in a moment, saw intact what I had to do. And I called it the Interfaith Declaration on Climate Change. And a, a friend who I'd met at one of the lesser climate talks in, in Bonn, Germany, he and I wrote a one-page document called that, the Interfaith Declaration on Climate Change. And because I, I had this, this epiphany of sorts where I realized that while you can describe the problem in terms of physics, greenhouse gases, what whatnot, that the cause was we were trying to fill an inner lack with stuff, with trips and vacations and iPods and iPads and whatnot. And that actually, if we were happier with ourselves, we might be less into consuming things and there might be less of a problem. Um, of course, we have a system where those appetites are provoked by advertising constantly. That's the basis of this defective operating system, as I call it. But I realized that there was a valid place for trying to address the climate problem through the auspices of spiritual leaders. And it turned out that I would always have a scientist present when I did one of these events. And then I realized that science was a necessary member of the party, needed to have a seat at the table, and that actually we were looking at a uh, consensus of not just all religious leaders. And when have you known religious leaders of many different faiths to agree on things? Well, here we have a huge consensus among all the faiths on the climate problem, and that consensus is shared by science. Well, this is kind of remarkable. And so I changed the name from Interfaith Declaration and changed it to United Planet, as in United Nations Erase the Borders, United Planet Faith and Science Initiative. And I called it initiative at the uh, recommendation of one of our founding members who said, if you're a anything else but an initiative, then you will be perceived as competition by other uh, interfaith organizations. So you want to be perceived as something that will come and go away. You're not competing for, for donations or dollars. So we are an initiative, the Faith and Science Initiative, and we put it out to uh, widely to the spiritual community and to scientists, and we got a very, very good response. So it is a very deeply felt homage to both the camps of science and spirituality, and the overlap, because there is an overlap. There are individuals who see no problem, no contradiction between one and the other. Well, that can be a problem, though, because I know some of our listeners become suspicious as soon as they hear religion is involved. Others might embrace it, but there has been a long history of religion denying, even suppressing science. We're still seeing it in the U.S. Congress off and on. So why should we trust the voices of religions now on this critical issue? You know, everybody's got to answer that for themselves when it comes down to it, but a good start before you start answering those deep questions is to try to put aside preconceptions. Shall we say there's been a long history, uh, and I'm not picking on one religion, but there's been a long history within the Catholic religion of all kinds of, I think we could agree, negative things, uh, people burned at the stake and the Inquisition. So there's, there have been wars that have come out of uh, the Vatican when, when the Vatican actually maintained an army and in the uh, Middle Ages or before. But then does one uh, therefore throw out all of the wonderful lobbying effort that Pope Francis has been doing this year because of the historical uh, painting, shall we say, of, of prior popes who did things that were not so good? I think we need to, we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to 
our children and this moment in time we owe it to humanity and life on earth to take a very clear look and put aside our pre- preconceptions, um, which is, you know, we have to start looking at reality and not looking at our beliefs if we're going to uh, avoid, I believe, if we're going to avoid the worst that's coming at us. Well, now, this question could involve faith or maybe mass psychology, but I think many of us are hoping there will be a a big spark, a big change. Do you think humans can shift quickly from their current state of apathy and denial into action? Are there social tipping points? Yes, I I do believe in that. Revolutions come from social tipping points. I'm not proposing revolution in this case, but revolutionary thinking often comes from very innocuous events. The Arab Spring is said to have arisen from one particular food vendor whose cart was uh, impounded by the police, uh, burning himself alive in, uh, at, in front of police headquarters, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in, in Tunisia. One event, one person's martyring himself, and I'm obviously not recommending, you know, as, as we say jokingly, kids don't try this at home. I like to, to make the quote, of the famous quote of Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And every time I say that, I'm, I'm brought to tears because... I think that's what we need. I think we need people to get motivated and not to feel powerless and to actually take action. Stuart Scott, I said at the outset that your organization records powerful speakers you attract and you post those videos on YouTube. Please tell us about a couple that you have available and where we can find them. Yes, thank you. Um, the, The United Planet Faith and Science Initiative, I'll call it my baby, sort of, we cooked up something that is now called climatematters.tv. This came out of the press conferences I did in Lima last year and in Bonn, Germany, earlier in 2015 before Paris. I, Instead of doing it a standard press conference, talking to the audience, talking to the press, I did it. I tried to reform it as a TV show, TV talk show, and it worked well in Bonn in June. And then we did it in Paris and did 11 of these that were, were quite successful. So I would urge people to go to climatematters.tv. And the very first one, I'm just posting it today. Uh, it will be presentable uh, by the time your, your listeners go to climatematters.tv. The very first one in the upper left corner is a pet project called the well, it's a Nobel Peace Prize. I took time in several of my Climate Matters shows in Paris to do a non-commercial break, uh, an analog of the, the usual commercial breaks in ordinary TV. Um, but this was a, a pitch for something that I was giving away, a Nobel Peace Prize for Sustainable Development. And I would urge your listeners to go to NP4SD. Dot org. That is Nobel Prize for Sustainable Development in an acronym, NP4SD.org. And take a look at the Nobel Peace Prize we're uh, proposing there, which would be a game changer. And we have reason to believe that it's got a, a good chance if a lot of people do the, the endorsement, public endorsement and qualified nominations. Well, finally, Stuart, I want to put you on the same spot where I find myself pretty well every day. Can we arrange what we have into a better world, or do we first have to pass through a dark portal where much is destroyed before we can get to a new beginning? What do you think? 
I'll have to say all of the above. That is, I do believe we can, but it would take a tremendous act of will. It would it, it would take something on the order of a second coming. <laughs> it would take some leader or some charismatic voice or some event for people to really straighten up quickly. I think it's possible. I don't think it's probable. I think we will have to go through some difficult times and I'm just hopeful that we don't set off what is uh, known as runaway climate change, which might conceivably condemn humanity to extinction. Uh, that's a possibility. Well, I guess that's where faith comes in. We've been talking with Stuart Scott. He's founded an organization which counts some of the world's top climate scientists and religious leaders among its members. It's called the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative. You can follow links in my Radio EcoShock blog, which is published every Wednesday at EcoShock.info, and I'll have a whole bunch of those videos there, plus how to get to United Planet's site. Stuart, thank you so much for supporting the voices that we do need to hear and for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm Alex Smith, reporting for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Hello, I'm David Koch. And I'm Charles Koch. And we're we're the the Koch Brothers. Brothers. You might know us just as a couple of chill guys who own the Republican Party. But what you may not know is that there's a major problem plaguing our society. Idiots who claim that climate change is real. Folks, climate change is pure fiction. So we spent billions of dollars assembling the world's hottest conservative pop stars to sing a song that we wrote. We hope it proves to you that climate change is hogwash. Enjoy! Long ago, droughts were super common. Earthquakes happened often and it rained a ton. Nowadays, rivers are still rushing. Waterfalls are gushing and snow exists. Don't believe the lies you hear. That the end of times is near. Liberals are twisting facts, it's a big conspiracy. That's a clip from the Climate Change Deniers Anthem, created by the comedy group Funny or Die. Watch the whole video at funnyordie.com, or chase the link in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Welcome back to Radio EcoShock. In the media, all we see or hear are relatively wealthy people talking amongst ourselves. Billions of global poor are missing. Many of them are women. Our guest Betsy Teutsch has collected earth-friendly ideas and tech to help them. Her new book is 100 Under $100, 
100 Ideas for Empowering Global Women from Philadelphia. Betsy, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you so much, Alex. Well, you know, I've traveled in the developed world and briefly underdeveloped world, I guess we could say, and briefly witnessed deep poverty in several countries. Yet I feel isolated from that, and I'm almost unable to find language to describe it. Who are the global poor, and how can we talk about them? Well, one way of talking about them is to say the bottom of the pyramid or the base of the pyramid, people that live on a couple dollars a day. But that doesn't mean much to people in the affluent world because the dollar goes much further in poor countries. So the way that I like to think about it is that these are people that live in low-resource regions. They're poor, but they're also missing a lot of the infrastructure that we take for granted. So not only do they have to live on a really meager income, but they are lacking water provision. They're lacking sanitation, waste management. They're lacking an electrical grid. They're by definition off-grid, not because they're hippies, but because there's no electricity and they have to patch it together with things like um, single-use batteries because you can't charge batteries if you don't have electricity. So they live in a life that's full of poverty traps. Uh, it's expensive to be poor. Um, they're also missing transportation grid and municipal services. Many of the global poor now live in expanding slums around the world. We call them shanty towns or favelas. They've moved from remote villages to cities, but they they're they're really they're called para-urban slums. They don't have municipal services. That would be even education and police. So people are just left to fend for themselves. Okay, so in India, the woman often runs the household purse, and in Africa, I've heard that women do most of the work. Is that why you chose to focus on women, per se, or were there other reasons? The reason I focused on women is that I have really fallen in love with what we call humanitarian technology. There was a great book about 10 years ago called Design for the Other 90%, the way that really cleverly designed, durable, attractive, affordable tools can really make a big difference. One of the things that I have in the book is called Solar Ear, and it's a very inexpensive, very effective hearing aid, and it uses solar charging batteries. Because even if you could give a, a poor person, one of these extremely poor people, a hearing aid, how would they ever be able to afford the batteries? So something like that is so smart, and it just... I love that kind of design, but I noticed when in the various women's empowerment organizations that I've worked with, schools for girls and funding grassroots organizations that are women's empowerment initiatives, they seem very technology shy, and that reflects the gender divide that you see in technology generally. It's sort of a male domain. In a patriarchy, men literally are the technology gatekeepers. So part of the challenge is that you have to get to the women directly so that they can understand how the technology and these better tools will help them improve their lives. They're already working incredibly hard. So the goal is to get them access to tools so that they can help themselves. Um, You can't just give people these tools. People don't want things that you just give them. We have to create demand. So I figured by focusing on women... That would be the way to unleash a lot of interest in this subject. Women are very effective tools for development. We know that. 
educating girls is the most impactful thing you can do for an economy. Right. Well, you know, reading your work, it seems like any one of these 100 ideas could become a movement in itself. I mean, just the, the type of stoves that you found, and it could go viral. Is that starting to happen, do you think? Well, I'm not getting any feeling that in the talks in Paris that poverty is on the agenda. Although I have Bill Gates is talking about getting people out of poverty and, you know, keeping our planet habitable. But when we talk about the big fight seems to be over coal, you know, coal-powered plants and that sort of thing, and that kind of energy provision doesn't do anything for the poor because they're never going to have transmission lines. They're never going to be able to get access to that kind of energy. That will benefit businesses. It'll benefit the economy more generally, but it won't get down to the household level. So I really want to focus on how a household in the developing world could improve quality of life and actually lower their carbon footprint. People don't pay too much attention to the globally poor because, relatively speaking, their carbon footprint is tiny relative to, say, my house (laughs) Um, in Philadelphia, where I live. But there are three million households where we could have a huge impact by making sure that people can get solar power, for example. But we're not talking about a solar array of 30 panels. We're talking about one or two panels having a huge impact. Right. It could provide light for people, including girls, to study at night or, or get some schooling in or get some extra work done. It's hard to think that in some places when it gets dark, well, it's dark. Yeah, and people are using kerosene lamps. And kerosene is really smoky. It's a fossil fuel. One of the dirty secrets, literally dirty, is that many governments subsidize kerosene. So they make it cheap and affordable. But it's still a really inferior light, and it's very smelly. It has a lot of toxic fumes that are bad for the planet, but they're really bad for the household. Um, They call it indoor air pollution. It causes a lot of respiratory disease and eye problems and fire hazards. So getting rid of kerosene would be a major improvement for everybody and the planet. And the thing is, a solar light that will replace a kerosene lamp, um, there's even one on the on the market called the no-caro light, and that stands for no kerosene. Uh, they're very inexpensive now because they use LEDs. LEDs need very little power. They're very efficient. They're hyper-efficient, really. So the lamps now only cost about 10 or $15, and people can actually pay for their own solar lamp by no longer having to purchase kerosene, even subsidized kerosene. So many of these upgrades pay for themselves. It's a question of getting systems in place and people informed. Now, you mentioned Paris. People like Bjorn Lomberg say we shouldn't bother spending money on alternative energy or reducing carbon emissions. He thinks global poverty is more important. Do we have to choose between the two, Betsy? Well, that's the thing we don't. We can do it together. And um, people, there's sort of a false impression that what we're going to do is expand the kind of infrastructures that we have in the affluent world to the developing world. And that would be incredibly stupid because they're inefficient and poorly designed. It's just that that's what we have and they work for us. But why would we want to replicate them? Um, A great example is our sewage system. We take all this waste 
uh, we call it waste, and we treat it and flush it and spend so much energy getting rid of it, and then we discharge it into the water. But there's a whole movement in the developing world and also off-grid called eco-sanitation, and essentially it captures the assets that are in waste. If they call it poop power, whatever, to be, you know, graphic. And it becomes manure, it becomes humanure, some people call it. It becomes fertilizer, it becomes a soil amendment. But you're capturing it. Also, if you use a biodigester, which uh, you can use animal waste, vegetable waste, human waste, you put it all in there, and it's anaerobic. And it, um, it basically is sort of a... Yeah, like it's a composter, except much faster. And um, it breaks down into biogas, so you can fuel a stove, say, just out of, you pipe it right out of the biodigester. It's like a landfill, I guess, same idea. And then you have organic fertilizer. So that's the kind of infrastructure that we should be building in the developing world to provide waste sanitation for people, not flush toilets and sewers. That just... A, it's impossible. If you've ever been in one of those favelas, you see that you can't just go add pipes. There's no space. Exactly. And it's prohibitive. So what we have to do, the fact that we're missing infrastructure in all of these para-urban slums is actually a huge opportunity to redo things and to redesign them so that they're much more eco-friendly and much more sustainable. Okay, Betsy Toich, what is your fantasy package of tools we need to improve the lives of poor women and their families? Well, I do dream of this. Um, if we could get each each household a small solar panel, doesn't have to be a big one anymore because they're so much more efficient. A relatively small one can be a starter. Then they can add. They already have cell phones by and large. Um, more people have cell phones than toilets in the world a surprising statistic to a lot of people. And then they can get lights and they can charge their cell phone and their lights from the solar panel. And eventually a lot of people are going to have computers and tablets. They're going to just leapfrog right over having televisions because they can go straight to having a screen that is connected through some sort of Wi-Fi to programming. They need to have some kind of water purification. There's a wonderful product on the market called the Solvatten. It was designed in Sweden. That's Swedish for sun water. And it's basically a big black suitcase that's, that uh, you fill with water, you open it, and you do solar water purification. It takes only about two hours. There's a gauge right on it that tells you when your water is ready. And it's so hot that it can double as a hot water heater. If you plant a few trees around people's homes, then you have all kinds of eco-benefits, and they could be fruit trees. The moringa tree is uh, incredibly quick-growing, and it has all kinds of health benefits. You can eat the leaves. Everybody calls it kind of the magic tree. So if you just did a couple of those things, you had a biodigester. Um, They have a balloon style that's much smaller for a household or a composting toilet so that they could safely have the benefits of separating their waste stream from their water stream. That would be huge. And then you get them an improved cook stove or a combination of cooking techniques so that they're not having to go out and girls collecting wood, which they spend hours a day doing that and it is deforesting. 
so you can then let the forests regenerate. So a simple package like that, which is probably just a few hundred dollars, and the family itself can pay for it in savings and improved productivity, would do an immense amount towards shrinking carbon footprints and increasing carbon sequestration. It's amazing how much. There's something called black carbon, which is what is produced when people cook over open fires. They're incredibly inefficient. And from what I have read, black carbon is just a technical name for soot and particulates. And it creates kind of a blanket. It's not technically a fossil fuel, but it does stay around and it's very um, damaging to the environment. So get rid of all those carbon soot providers and we'd have a much healthier air quality. Yeah, it kills millions of people uh, just from cooking inside with open fires, as you describe. And that soot is traveling up to glaciers in the Himalayas and darkening them, causing them to melt faster, and even makes it all the way up to the Arctic, where I've seen pictures of Greenland that's uh, it's now gray land because of the soot that has arrived there from around the world. And then you have this great big cloud forms over India for part of the year and over China that takes away up to 10% of the sun's power. So stoves, incredibly important, and, and new ways to do that. Radio EcoShock. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Betsy Teutsch. We're talking about her collection of 100 ideas, under $100, to empower global women. Betsy, what about population concerns? Are we really post-peak child? That's a new idea for me. What does that mean? Well, Hans Rosling, who has this wonderful uh, website, Gapminder, is a brilliant uh, Norwegian, and his field, he's an epidemiologist, I believe, his field is visualizing data. And he shows that statistically, we are at, we're post-peak child. We peaked uh, at the number of babies born a couple of years ago, and nobody knows this, it seems, Um the number of births per mother has just plummeted over one generation. In Mexico, I think it's dropped from five to two per mother, just as an example. And that's as a combination of better family planning, but it's also educating girls. When you can keep girls in school and then they can go on to secondary school, high school, um, they postpone the age of marriage. They're more employable. And then they can get jobs, they contribute to the economy, that's the whole Pacific Rim miracle, and um, they delay fertility. And then when they educated women have many fewer children, that's a fact that we know around the world. So there's about a 200 million women gap in family planning. So if we met that gap, we could get there even faster. But the increase, we're, we're still going to be experiencing a huge population increase. But it's not because more kids are being born. It's because the kids that were born ahead of them are aging and life expectancy is increasing. So it's all those extra people that were born in the 70s, 80s, 90s, zeros, all those people aging. But eventually, the predictions are that we will max out at, I think, around 11 billion is the prediction. And then we'll start to gradually taper off. So, of course, uh, 
baby born in an affluent part of the world consumes much more than a baby born in the low-income parts of the world because there's only so much people can consume. But it's good news. It, obviously, if there are fewer people than we thought there might be, the, the predictions when I was... I'm in my 60s. The predictions when I was in high school, when Paul Ehrlich was talking about the population bomb, that did not come to be. It's actually much better news than anybody expected. And it's all about educating women. Well, yes and no. I mean, 11 billion people on this planet, to me, is a catastrophe. We've got 7 billion now, and we're using up much more than the planet can give. So we're going to have to use a lot of the tools in your book to uh, bring it down to where we can have that many people on the earth. So let's say I agree, and I do agree, that you've got a great collection of tools in this book. The challenge always is, how can we communicate with the billions of people who need it? They're not on the Internet. They probably can't read, almost definitely can't afford to buy a book. What are your ideas to propagate what you've found? That's a great question, um, because you don't want to just preach to the NGOs. You want to reach the people that need these things. There are a number of outlets. Schools are, of course, our biggest hope. And um, the advances in education, even though the children don't have computers maybe at home, more and more schools are going to be having them. So, And radio is one of the most effective ways, since we're on the radio. Let's give a shout-out to radio. Um, in places that are still very low-tech, Radio is often accessible. People have, communities have radios, and they have radio uh, broadcasting, which is ex hyper-local. So they can run educational edutainment to explain concepts to people that they might not have otherwise had access to. Um, a really effective way of reaching women is through women's self-help groups and women's cooperatives. They generally are a band of women that are working together. Usually they're farmers or women that have uh, have gotten micro-loans from a micro-finance institution. And there's an educational and leadership uh, component to those. So women are exposed to new ideas. They get a chance to develop more self-confidence and become leaders and Together, women individually, women are very disempowered. But as a group, there is more chance of their being able to really speak up and speak out. One thing that's great about the Internet, for those that have access, is that it's two-way. So it isn't just us telling people what they should do. It's women can be speaking to one another about what they want and what they need. And we can be a little bit more attentive. We have access now to data that no one would have ever had before because of cell phones. So I, I would expect that the Internet in the end is probably going to be the way that people, the, de the demand for it is huge, and a lot of these ideas will come along with it. So you cover some other topics in the book, such as uh, finance and also some legal things. Just tell us about a couple of the ideas from that section of your book. I'd love to. I am very much, as I said, in love with the, the technical, the handheld tools. They're so clever. But I realize that what hampers women is not just the absence of tools. It's patriarchy and legal systems that actively discriminate against women. So I do have a section of human rights. Human rights are women's rights and human rights are the same. So registering the birth of children is very important. Um, working against violence against women is very important. 
One of my favorite mashups is a number of women in Egypt started an app called Harass Map, and they use basic mapping skills that you can use, um, global positioning, that sort of thing. And they designed a map where women can add information where they were harassed in the neighborhood. Often, it's when they go to the public latrine, for example. So once women have access to this kind of technology, then they can use it in ways that are useful to them, and they can share with local police. This is a hot spot. This is where a lot of women are getting harassed, and actually, they can do something about it. So it's very important that we focus on ways in which women are more legally empowered And I included um, a lot of financial tools because I mentioned before that many of these tools pay for themselves because they save money, especially if they're solar. You no longer need to be paying for fuel if you have a solar panel that's charging from the sun. But people need the entry-level buy-in. They don't have enough money to buy a solar panel, but they can buy it on the installment plan. So you need a financial tool to get people over the hurdle so that they can obtain these uh, beneficial tools. So microfinance and insurance, mobile money is huge. In Kenya, for example, most everybody now sends their money electronically. And that's great for poor people because they never had bank accounts. They didn't have access to checking. If they, they had a cash economy and cash, women carrying cash is a bad combination. They're extremely vulnerable. This way, they're much more secure and they don't have to travel places, which is also great from the standpoint of transportation. The fewer people that have to move around, the less gasoline you're going to be using. Wow, this is like a travel tour. You're telling me things that I have just entirely missed. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners as we wrap up here, Betsy? Well, I would just like to tell them that um, in my book, I knew that people would want to be engaged, not just giving money, but in other helpful ways. So for each entry, I included an item that the reader might want to further involve themselves in. So I tried to make it as easy as possible for people to um, become activists on their own or supporters of causes. Um, it's important. Being being an advocate is extremely important. And with the simple tools of the Internet, you can really help get messages out about what's important. Is there a website, a Facebook page, or Twitter tag where people can follow you and this book? I am at 100 under 100. Org, and I have a ton of resources on my website. So any kid that needs to write a paper, it's all there for you. My Twitter is at Betsy Twitch. That's my name. And the Facebook page is facebook.com slash 100 under 100. So if you like my Facebook page, I keep updating every time I learn something new about one of the tools in the book. They just won an award or they they have a new version out. I post that so you can learn more about what's happening in real time with these tools. I keep updating. Our guest, Betsy Teutsch, has lots of ideas and affordable strategies to start making the lives of global women better. The book is 100 Under $100, 100 Ideas for Empowering Global Women. You can find links to Betsy on her Facebook page and following her on Twitter, and I'll put links to all that in my weekly show blog, published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. 
Betsy, thank you so much for joining us on Radio EcoShot. It's been a pleasure, and I think people really need to know that we can get people out of poverty and shrink carbon. Good news. I'm Alex Smith, reporting. From Ithaca, New York, and more lately Venice Beach, California, here is Finian Makepeace singing 2060. A couple of years ago, I had a dream that really changed the way that I look at the future. I was in a refugee camp as an old, old man. Climate change had really taken its toll. My granddaughter snuck me under the fence and took me to a city that lay in ruin. And She turned up to me and asked with tears in her eyes why I hadn't done something to, to stop this from happening and uh, really changed how I, I look at what we need to do and what we can do, how we can make a big shift and a big difference. So I wrote this song. It's called 2060. of night when the fears take flight I fell into a dream I'm still haunted and cold and it shakes my soul to say what I've seen it was the summer 2060 I was an old old man one of 12 billion men women and children In a sea of sand In a sea Of growing sand A frail young child My own granddaughter Led me from the throng We marched through doorways Of endless sorrows as she sang this sad, sad song It's too late To hope when the world begins to bleed It's too late For love When our hearts are filled with grief She cried, oh Grandpa On the way to the cell How did you justify these wrongs were right or these actions might not be what bring us down it was in your power to shift it all but I lay frozen in shame till the morning came when I felt my lover's kiss And to my surprise As I opened my eyes She described a dream of bliss It was this summer 2016 We stood hand in hand The planet flourished Each soul was nourished With peace throughout the land peace throughout the land and all the children born free and fearless share the same desire 
To make it so. 